Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 8. How many of you are glad to be called a Christian? It's a wonderful thing. I'm glad that, that Jesus Christ came and was born of a virgin and lived a sinless life, died on a rugged cross for me, for you. He was buried and then He rose again the third day, proving that He was and is and always will be God. That's our hope, isn't it? The Bible says that because He lives, we'll live also. The only hope that we have for eternal life is the hope of the resurrection that Jesus Christ brought. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. Because He lives, we can live also. Are you glad about that today? And, and of course, that's why we worship on Sundays. Jesus Christ fulfilled the Sabbath, so this is not the Christian Sabbath. Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath, and now we come together on the first day of the week to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Some of you are looking at your calendars and saying, it's not Easter today, is it? <laughs> no, we as Christians, that's why we come together on Sunday. We, we don't just come to church one day a week, to cel- one day a year to celebrate the resurrection. We as believers, we come together every Sunday because that's when Jesus Christ rose. Then the early church came together on the first day of the week. And that's just continued for all these 2,000 years now. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for every person in every place in the world that's proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ today. Whether they're Baptist or Presbyterian or Lutheran or Episcopal or nothing, whatever they are, I'm thankful for every person in the world that's preaching the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ today. Amen? Amen. Praise the Lord for that. And I'm also thankful that God has given us truth. So look at John chapter 8 with me. John chapter 8. We've been talking about how to think. How to think. I believe, Lord willing, that next uh, Sunday we'll be back in the book of Zechariah, preaching through that, and it's such an exciting study. But uh, look here. We've been talking about how to think. We've been talking about evolution and all of those different things. And God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And then what does God think about man? And uh, now... I want us to talk this morning a little bit about truth. The Bible says in John 8, 32, And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. John 8, 32. Let's read this verse out loud together. You ready? And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. How many of you are thankful for freedom? For liberty? Isn't that awesome? You know, the NSA may be watching us right now. Turn off your cell phones, everyone. I don't want them to hear me. But you know what? We still have freedom to come together and worship. Praise the Lord. Lord. Do you know that it doesn't matter how free you are if you're not worshiping in truth? Isn't that amazing? You see, truth and freedom both come from Jesus Christ. That's where they come from. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to study it. Lord, thank you that you have given us truth, that we can understand some things from your word. We can know what the church is supposed to be in the world. And Lord, help us to be that. In Jesus' name, amen. Keep your place in John chapter 8, but go to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. Now, how many of you would, would agree that probably most conservative Christians would be thankful for the passage we read in John. That we can know the truth and that truth can make us free. How many many of you would agree with that? 
but one of the there's a dividing line in Christianity. And we're going to read a verse that will kind of help you to understand where this dividing line in Christianity is. Right now, again, how many of you are glad to be a Christian? Name the name of Christ, represent Christ, uh, to, to boldly declare His name in the culture. That's who we are. All right? But let's look at Psalm 119. Look at verse 104. Through thy precepts I get understanding. Psalm 119, 104. Sorry, I didn't announce the verse. Verse 104. Through thy precepts I get understanding. Now, how many of you are thankful that you can get understanding through God's Word? But look at the result of that. Therefore, I hate every false way. How many of you ever heard this? Don't be a hater. Don't be a hater. Hate the game, not the player. Yo. <laughs> right? Yeah. Anybody ever heard that before? Maybe not quite in that dialect, but right? You didn't know I was multilingual, did you? Yes. Look at verse 128. Same chapter, verse 128. Therefore, I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right... And I hate every false way. See, Christianity has moved to a place where, based on a misunderstanding of God's love, that we're supposed to love every idea. Do you know that there are some ideas that you're supposed to hate? We're supposed to hate child molesting. Would you all agree with that? One of the worst indictments on our culture is repeat child offender. Yeah, after the first time... There are ways to fix that. So this is there are ideas that we should hate. Y'all agree with that? Now, the reason that we can know that is because that is a truth. Is that fair? I have concern. I, I, I have considered all of thy or esteemed all of thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. To know what is false, you have to know what is right. And you all have heard the illustration of Secret Service agents studying genuine currency so that they know it so well that they immediately see and can recognize false currency or counterfeit currency. How many of you have heard that before? That's what they do. Well, we ought to know the truth so well that when an error comes along, it's immediately identifiable to us as error. And that ability, do you know what Jesus calls that? Freedom. Freedom. I'm not concerned about imbibing error because I know the truth so well that that truth continues to grow in me and gives me freedom and understanding and ability to communicate God's Word to a dying and lost world. Have you ever been afraid to speak up because you weren't confident in your ability to communicate the truth? That's happened to me. You're in a situation and somebody says something that you know that's wrong and you know that it's wrong, but you don't know the right answer well enough to boldly proclaim that answer. When that's happened to me, I generally go and study up on that particular subject well enough so that doesn't happen again. And I know that you have done that as well. That's, those are the things that we learn the best, aren't they? The things that we're embarrassed that we don't know, well, we learn those and you never forget those things. That's a love for the truth and it's a hate for error. Which I hate of error. Now, that's what we're supposed to have. I think some people 
have in their minds this concept that if you hate evil, then you are not capable of expressing genuine love. In other words, it's not loving to tell someone that they're sinners, that they're a sinner. It's not loving to tell someone that they are wrapped up in a false theological system. That's not kind. That's not loving. But when you understand what the truth is, then you understand that we should not give the answer in anger. We shouldn't give the answer in some kind of a condescending speech. We ought to do it out of love. Why? Because if they have the truth, then we're giving them freedom. We're giving them liberty. How many of you know somebody that's wrapped up in a false theological system? And their lives are being destroyed by it. Being destroyed by it. And it doesn't matter what church they go to. If it's a false system, they're in bondage to that false system. Is that fair? And there are churches all over the world where those kinds of struggles going on. Um, I'm speaking tonight at a church in Euclid, Ohio. And uh, I, I was speaking to the pastor and, and I asked him, I said, when's the last time or have you recently taught on the Baptist distinctives? And he said, no, no, it's, it's been a while. And I had this thought. If someone asked people at Grace Baptist Church, when is the last time that your pastor taught on the Baptist distinctives? It's been more than five years since we've done it here. There are folks that are attending our church that have never heard what we believe about the church and who we are and what we are. So one of the things that happens in this discussion is there, there is a segment of Christianity that says away with all labels. I don't like labels. I'm a Christian. Well, that's a label. But... But it's the idea, well, being called a Christian is good enough. I don't need any other label. Well, then, th with that kind of understanding, let's take all the names off of all the jerseys of all the sports teams. And then make sure they're not wearing the same color. How many of you think that might cause confusion? Right? Any of you ever playing ball and you pass to the other team? Has that ever happened to you, playing basketball? I've done it. I passed to the ref once on a fast break. That was really good. <laughs> Yeah, whoops. I was awesome. Um, the, this idea of not having titles, we'll use this as an example. Do we have any Americans here? Any Americans here? Are you a Ted Kennedy American or a George Washington American? You know what Ted Kennedy said when uh, he found out his girlfriend was expecting? We'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Some of you folks are old enough to get that. If you don't, not, you'll have to look it up. Um, so are you, are you a Ted Kennedy American? No. You're George Washington American. How many of you think there's a difference? Seriously. How many of you aren't sure? There's, there's a big difference. Would you all agree with that? So how do we know the difference? Well, you use titles. I, I, I believe in liberty. I'm a conservative. Um, I, I suppose many of us used to, would have used to use the terms Republican or Democrat, but there's probably not enough difference in the two of them now to say that. So you have to say, I'm a conservative. I'm a, I'm a fiscal conservative. I'm a social conservative. You know, and you have, to, you have to identify, you have to qualify these terms so people know where you are. Would you all agree with that? Anyone here think that it's a good idea to borrow money to get out of debt? Right? You've got to take your brain out and play with it to think like that. Right? I think it's a, it's a mental disorder. It just, it, it doesn't work. There's a, 
There's a, there's a real conflict in understanding with that kind of thing. You all agree with that? Well, those same problems are in Christianity. You have those same issues in Christianity. So when we identify Baptist distinctives, when I wrote the book, Dalton Robertson and I wrote the book, Why Baptist? My uh, mom, of course, thought it was the greatest book in the history of Christianity. All right? And you moms understand this. And so she gave it to my uncle. My uncle's a good, godly man. He's, a, he's an elder in a, in a, in a good church. Um, actually, it's a Baptist church, but he, he was not a Baptist all of his life. He went to a non-denominational church. He got saved there. It was a good, solid church. It's a, uh, it's in a church in New Jersey. And um, so my mom gives him this book. It's called Why Baptist? And he looks at it, and the first thing he says is, does he think only Baptists are right? That was his first response. So my mom told me that, and I said, did you tell him yes? <laughs> and it's interesting. In our culture, when you say something like that, so let me make, let me make a, a declarative statement. Only Baptist church doctrine is New Testament church doctrine. Of all the systems, the only system of church polity or government that is expressly biblical is the Baptist system. Okay? So I make that statement. And so now, because of the influence of the ecumenical movement, because of the influence of, of many people in, in, through Christian radio or organizations, people get uncomfortable. Are, are there visitors here? Are, did, he, did he say that with visitors here? And I remember when I first, the first time I did this, it was years ago, and Maureen had um, brought a group from the Christian school to do um, a drama thing, you know, Happy Hands Club or something. And um, so they, they did, <laughs> some of you don't know the reference, others of you do. Um, and so I, I didn't really even think about it, but it was, it was on a Sunday night, and a lot of churches in town don't have a Sunday night service. So we had people from the Lutheran Church, the Methodist Church, and all different churches here on my first night of teaching Why Baptist. It really wasn't planned. God does this stuff for you. I want you to know that. It was pretty cool. And so I was going to do the first of the Baptist distinctives that night, but I thought that was a great opportunity to teach all of them because I might not have that opportunity again. And so one of the pastors, a Methodist pastor that was here, I think we, we had at least one Methodist pastor, two, two Lutheran pastors here that night when I was teaching the Baptist distinctives. Why Baptist? And so this Methodist pastor came up to me afterwards, and he was, he was a little put out. And he said, um, he said, I want you to know, I don't agree with what you said tonight. And I just smiled, and I said, well, if you did, then you'd be a Baptist. I said, did you see the sign? This is Grace Baptist Church. If I come to your Methodist church, I'd love to hear what you believe about the church. But this is a Baptist church, and I just taught what Baptist doctrine is. And he went, oh, okay. It made sense to him then, right? There's, there's no reason for us to, uh, to be shy or bashful about what we believe. And if I thought it was wrong, I would be something else. And so when we, when we get to these subjects, what happens is, well, my mother-in-law is Church of God. My, 
my I've got a, a brother-in-law that's a Presbyterian, and he loves God. He's a great Christian. I would never doubt that or deny it for a minute. It's a foolish thing to think that only Baptists are saved or Baptists are going to heaven. I heard Dalton Robertson, we were preaching in Texas together, and he said there are a lot more Baptists in Texas than will be in heaven. It's an interesting thought, isn't it? You don't get saved by going to a church. Being a member of a particular body does not take you to heaven unless it's the body of Christ. That's the only body that you can be in and go to heaven. Is that right? And so, here, let me ask you a couple of questions, all right? And I'm really insecure, so I need you to answer. All right, so, number one, is truth knowable? Is it possible to know the truth? Yes. yes. All right, um, is there a God? Yes. Has He revealed Himself to man? Yes. Has He done so in an understandable manner? Yes. Well, then why is there so much confusion in Christianity? So, you better not try to answer that. We'd be here all day. All right. So if God has revealed Himself to us, and He did describe what the church is, why are there so many different theological systems? Let me give you a list of things that, that people who would call themselves Christians disagree on. Salvation, baptism, eternal security, the nature of the church, its government, members, and mission, the second coming, the Lord's Supper, access to God in prayer, forgiveness of sins, the mind and conscience, and the future judgment of saints and sinners. But nothing important. So here's the idea. That list that I just read. How many of you think there's some important things in that list? And yet, when you look at broader Christianity, there's, there, there are differences about those subjects. And so if God has revealed Himself in a truthful and understandable manner, if He has described to us what a church its members, its government, and its mission ought to be, if he has clearly stated those things, then how can there be confusion? There really shouldn't be. The issue comes down to one of authority. Is my authority the Word of God, or is my authority a church constitution? Is my authority the Word of God, or the college where I attended? Is my authority the Word of God, or some creed, or statement, or whatever. What is my authority? If my authority is simply the Word of God, there are going to be a lot less discussions or arguments over truth. All right? Now, let me step back from this. I started my message by saying I'm thankful for every person in the world of whatever denomination or group who is preaching salvation by grace through faith. You all agree with that? Praise the Lord for anyone who is saved through that. And, and we would all be willing, I think, to die for their opportunity to give the gospel. I would hope. We don't really know until we have that tested. I would hope that we would all be willing to do that. What happens when we don't know the truth? The Bible says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Well, ignorance produces visible results. Visible confusion, visible compromise, visible heresy, visible apostasy, and visible infidelity. And I'll explain some of that. But I want to read to you a statement that will help you to understand the issue. Um, now, how many of you understand there's a difference between evangelical Christianity and Roman Catholic Christianity? Right? And, and again, sometimes even on a statement like that, people get nervous. I don't know 
know if I should say that. You, you do know that there is, but if you don't want to offend somebody. The Pope would tell you that we're different. And he wouldn't be ashamed of it. He's, he's, he boldly and proudly says what he believes. All right? Uh, if, we, if we brought the Catholic priest in, if we got Doug's brother, Father Dan from, from Holy Angels, our, our, one of our deacons, Doug Schmidtmeyer, his brother's the Catholic, one of the Catholic priests down at Holy Angels. If we had him come in here today, he would tell you that we disagree. Is that right, Doug? And you've experienced some of those conversations, haven't you? Can you imagine Christmas at the, Schmidt, at the Schmidtmeyer house? All right, so um, there were some theologians, Norman Geisler and others, and Geisler's a good man. He's done a lot of good things, a lot of helpful things. But they were trying to explain the differences between Roman Catholic and um, evangelical theology. And so this is their statement from the Christian Research Institute. This was written by Kenneth R. Samples. Listen to this statement. Tell me if there's any confusion in this statement. Okay. While Catholicism is foundationally or structurally an Orthodox Christian church, and the, to an Orthodox Christian church, they have in parentheses, is one that affirms the creeds, Reformed theologian Roger Nicole is nevertheless correct in stating, quote, Reformation Protestants believe that much in Catholic theology tends to undermine and compromise that Orthodox Christian confession, especially as it relates to the crucial issue of the gospel message, unquote. In agreement with most evangelical scholars, then, the Christian Research Institute regards Roman Catholicism as neither a cult, which is a non-Christian religious system, nor a biblically sound church, but a historically Christian church, which is in desperate need of biblical reform. Huh? What does that mean? When I read Geisler's report on this, he said that they had compared Roman Catholic doctrine with evangelical doctrine, and they're in 85% agreement. Now, this is a direct quote. Next paragraph, direct quote. The primary area of difference is the gospel. So, here's where the issue comes in. What is a Christian? A Christian is a person who's placing their faith and trust alone in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Realizing they deserve hell, they repent of their sins and being a sinner and they come to the only hope of salvation, which is Jesus Christ, plus nothing. Is, is that what a Christian is? How many agree that's what a Christian is? It's very clear biblically that's what a Christian is. Well, if the primary area of the gospel is the distinction, then one is a Christian and one is not. I'll make a profound statement. It's going to blow your mind. You young people, you won't get this kind of truth anywhere else. Are you ready? Things that are different are not the same. Wow. Jay Curlis, taken after his dad. Wow. How many of you understand that things that are different are not the same? If one says that salvation by, is by grace through faith alone, and one says you've got to do all of these other things, one is the true gospel and one is the false gospel. Is that right? And so it doesn't do anyone any good to say that this is okay. What we tell those people is we love you and Jesus Christ loves you and He died on the cross for you. you know, all that other stuff. When I was at uh, St. Paul's in, uh, or St. Peter's in Rome, I was there. The Pope, had his funeral had been on a Saturday. I was there on Monday. And I, I'm walking through and... Well, I won't tell you that story. Um, okay, 
the, I went to the information desk and I asked for an application. And they said, for what? I said, for the Pope. I understand you need a new one. I think I'd do a good job. And I said, what? I said, I think I could make a good Pope. What? And the missionary is with me is dragging me. He says, you're going to get us killed. <laughs> um, but <laughs> it was really funny. But I'll tell you what wasn't funny. When I walked in, I saw this girl, just an attractive, probably 21-year-old girl, and she walked in and she kissed her lips and touched a statue and prayed to this statue. And then I saw people lining up. And I said, what are they lining up for? And they said, for the sacrament of penance. And so I went to the first one in line and I said, you don't have to do this. Jesus Christ paid your penalty for you. Jesus Christ died on the cross and if you will accept His free gift of salvation... If you'll understand, you can't do anything to be saved, but trust in Him. He'll save you. You don't have to do this. And they just looked at me, and I went to the next one. Who knows how many people in line? I went to everybody in that line, and I told them they didn't have to do it. Now, I don't know how many of them spoke English. (laughs) But I think God can take that and use it. Amen. Amen? You see, it wouldn't have done any good for me as a Baptist preacher to say, I have such respect for what you're doing. This is wonderful. No, it's not wonderful. It's horrible. Because people are trusting in something other than the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross to take them to heaven. We don't hate those people. We love them. They need salvation through faith. That's the message of the gospel. When we don't know the truth... It it brings ignorance. The Bible says in Hosea 4.6, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Ignorance destroys our heritage. We don't know who we are. Ignorance destroys our discipline. We don't know how to behave. Ignorance destroys our doctrine. We don't know what to preach. Ignorance destroys our purity. We don't know what to exclude. Ignorance destroys our passion. We don't know what to love. Ignorance destroys our resolve. We don't know what to endure. And ignorance destroys our distinctiveness. We don't know how to be peculiar. Do you know the Bible says that we're saved to be a peculiar people? We're supposed to be different. We're not supposed to be like everyone else. We're supposed to be different, and that difference will express itself in our personal behavior, but also in our doctrinal system. What we believe, what we agree with, what we disagree with, what we accept, what we exclude, what we profess, and what we reject. What we believe will change everything about us. If, if, Our worship includes all of our heart, mind, body, and soul. Isn't that right? All right. So, if we understand that truth is knowable, well, then we have to also understand that obedience is possible. It is possible to know the truth, and it is possible to be obedient to the Scriptures. So, when we talk about the Baptist distinctives, again, we're not saying that only Baptists are going to heaven. What we're saying is that there are a a series of doctrines that make us distinct or different from every other religious group. When Pastor Nathan was in high school, he came to me and he said, um, Pastor Jim, I've got some good Christian friends. Um, and let me, you young people, this is an interesting thing. Pastor Nathan had Christian friends when he was in school. That's a good idea. Amen? I know you all are doing that too. Many of you are doing a great job with that. But Pastor Nathan came to me and he said, I've got Methodist friends. What, what is different about what they believe and what we believe? Isn't that a good question? It's a good question, and we talked about that. That's what this is. 
It's not saying we're the only people that love Jesus, that we're the only people that, that win souls, that we're the only people going to heaven. What we're saying is that there are some things that make those in Christianity who believe in the Word of God, there are some things that make us different from others. Let's, def- let's define what those are. If you're taking notes, it's the Baptist acrostic. And so the first is the Bible as our sole authority. The Bible as our sole authority. Look at 2 Timothy 3. Um, so you're at 2 Timothy 3. We're going to read verse 15 in a minute. Um, I do want to say this also. We're not saying that only churches that have the name Baptist on them agree with these things. That's not the issue. But these are the Baptist distinctives. So th- there are a lot of people that are Baptist. I just don't know they are. It's funny. Um, Brother Fagali, um, you know, he's our missionary to the Middle East and Africa. He, he was uh, doing evangelism in um, Sudan. And he met this pastor in Sudan who came to get some training from Brother Fagali. And he said, what religion are you? And Brother Fagali said, I'm a Baptist. And he said, what's a Baptist? I've never heard that. And Brother Fagali told him. And he goes, oh, I'm a Baptist. <laughs> He'd never been to a Bible college in his life. All he had was a Bible. Isn't that fun? That is so cool. So we're not asking what school you went to. That's not the issue. The issue is these these specific doctrines that will separate us from other ecclesiastical or church systems. All right. So here we are. Verse 15. Bible is our sole authority. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. The Bible is our sole authority. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. First Thessalonians 2, 13. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Paul's authority was not his own word. Paul's authority was the word of God. That's the the churches that he established, that was their authority. So our authority is the word of God. Go to first Peter or second Peter chapter one. Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 20. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. Uh, how many of you have heard someone say, that's just your interpretation? What I like to say is, I didn't interpret it, I just read it. Well, what do you think it means? What it says. Are there things in the Bible that are hard to be understood? Yes, but not the most important things. They're easy to be understood, all right? Now, so when we talk about the Bible being our authority, how, in what way is it our authority? Well, this same chapter helps us. Look what the Bible says, um, verse 16. 
And we're in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. So how many of you know that Peter saw Jesus? Yeah, yeah. Then look at what it says. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. So here's Peter, Peter, James, and John up on the Mount of Transfiguration. They see Jesus. He's transfigured before him. They see a portion of his glory and they fall down before him. And he consults with Moses and Elijah about the death which he would accomplish. And Peter stands up and he didn't know what to say, so he said it. And he said, let's build three tabernacles, one for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. You know you've messed up when God the Father speaks from heaven to correct you. God says, this is my beloved Son in whom... I'm well pleased. And I think it says, hear Him. Hear Him. Audible voice of God. How many of you have been in a situation in your life when you really would have liked to hear the audible voice of God? Do you know you've got something better than that? Look at the next verse. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts. Do you know what's more sure than the audible voice of God? The written word of God. Why? Because you could be deceived. You could hear a voice that you think is from God, but it's not. And here's the thing. Do you know what happened with Peter? Peter heard that voice and he misunderstood it. Why did Peter deny Jesus Christ? Because when he heard that voice, he thought Jesus Christ was ready to establish his kingdom. When Jesus was crucified, Peter, he threw it all away. Why? Because he had misunderstood the audible voice of God. That's why he tells us later, we have a more sure word of God. It's the Scriptures. It's the Scriptures. The Bible is our sole authority. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because we talked about it just recently, but there are four authorities in Christianity. Four groups in Christianity, all divided by authority. The first group is traditional Christianity. That would be the Roman Catholic Church or many of the mainline Protestant churches. And they would tell you that their authority is the Word of God and tradition. How many of you have heard that before? And they're, they're proud of it. They're Word of God and tradition. I saw the Archbishop of Canterbury. He's the head of the Anglican Church. He said, our authority is the Word of God and tradition. I heard him say that with my own two ears. They're proud of it. And so what happens, though, in that system, if there's ever a conflict between the Word of God and tradition, tradition always overrules the Word of God. An example would be infant baptism. There are no infants baptized in the Scriptures. None. None. What they say is that, that the, since uh, children were circumcised, and that was the sign of the Old Testament, that the sign of the New Testament is infant baptism. Well, it's fine they believe that. The Bible just doesn't say that. Nowhere does the Bible say that. So their authority is the Word of God and tradition. Here we believe in believer's baptism because that's what's taught clearly in the Scriptures. All right? So that's the Word of God and tradition. The second group is the Word of God and experience. This would be charismatic Christianity. So they believe in the Word of God as their authority, but they also believe they're still hearing messages from God today or they're having a personal experience where God is doing something specifically for them outside of the Scriptures. How many of you know somebody that believes that way? 
right? So their authority is the Word of God and their experience. The only problem is if there's ever a conflict between the Word of God and their experience, their experience always overrules the Word of God. The only problem with that is the Bible says your heart will lie to you. I, I have vertigo. That's why I don't like to get up on high ladders. I, I have vertigo. And there have been times in my life when I'm laying on the bed and the, the room is spinning. Now, Luke, let me ask you something. Is the room really spinning? How do you know? You weren't there. And that's the answer. Isn't, how many of you ever had somebody say that? Well, the Bible says this. Well, you don't understand. You weren't there. Really? So what you're saying is that your experience is more authoritative than the written Word of God. So, dueling authorities. There's a third group, and it's modern evangelical Christianity. And their dueling authorities would be the Word of God and scholarship. If you ask them if they can hold the Word of God in their hands, they'll say no. You find this in the footnotes in your study Bible that says this verse is not found in the best manuscripts, or a better word would be. In my commentaries, I've read this. This passage may be genuine. Well, that's helpful. Doesn't that just give you great confidence in the Word of God? Who's the authority there? The person determining whether or not the Word of God is true. Well, let me tell you. The Bible says every Word of God is true. So I'll just believe the Bible. Amen? So that's the fourth group. Fourth group. All right? The fourth group, very simple. Word of God is our authority. That's it. So, Word of God in tradition, Word of God in experience, Word of God in scholarship, or just the Word of God. We believe the Word of God, it is our sole authority. The Bible is our sole authority. We don't hold to creeds, we don't hold to customs, we don't hold to traditions. We don't hold to any of those things. Do we have traditions? Sure. Sure, we come to church at a certain time. We have a church services at a certain time. Those are traditions. Those things aren't... We could change the church time and it would be just fine. Amen? Why, why did they have church at 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock? So, so the farmers would have time to milk their cows and come to church. How many of you milked this morning? <laughs> Brother Farrier, all right? We need to lay hands on Brother Farrier and pray that God will convict him of his sin. Um, that, so we could change the time of the church service. That's not an important thing. Coming to church is an important thing. The Bible says, Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, as the manner of some is, and so much the more as you see the day approach. So we come together in church. Right? What is one? One is a, one is a command. The other is a tradition. The tradition can be changed. The command can't. Bible's our sole authority. It's very important. Then, the next one. Bible is our sole authority. The autonomy of the local church. Look at Colossians 1.18. Colossians 1.18. I have a feeling this is going to be a two-parter. Look at Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18. Speaking of Jesus Christ, for He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. Who is the head of this church? Well, the archbishop. No. Who's the head of this church? Jesus. Jesus is the head of this church. And again, no creeds or councils. That is not our authority. If you ask me what I believe and I say, well, the Council of Nicaea in 325 said, really? That's your authority? No, the authority is the Word of God. It's the Scriptures. And so that makes this church autonomous. Think about the cell structure of the terrorist networks. Why is it so hard to wipe out the terrorists? Because they're not connected. They're not connected. 
How did Jesus Christ intend for us to change the world through autonomous bodies? This is where it becomes so important. Every church in Sydney could go bad, and Grace Baptist doesn't have to. Every church in America could go bad, but Grace Baptist doesn't have to. If Grace Baptist goes bad, there are 30 other churches in, in the area that are, that are okay. That is the key to God's plan. So Brother Ferrier was pastor down in Piqua. We had great fellowship, didn't we, brother, as churches? As churches. But if Brother Ferrier's church went doctrinally wrong, we don't have to have fellowship with that church anymore. It doesn't affect this church at all. As a matter of fact, by separating from that church, it keeps the doctrinal error from entering this church. That's the idea of an autonomous local church. The other issue in an autonomous local church is no one chooses your pastors for you. The church chooses their pastor. So imagine if, if you know, I was here for two years and then you know, somebody over me, some commission or whatever, said, now it's time for you to go somewhere else. Now it's time for you to go somewhere else. That's just not God's plan. That's not God's plan. So this church chooses its own pastors. And then the other thing that happens in this church is we don't have any money from outside sources. This church is funded by the membership. That's God's plan. So what that means is that every church can minister in its own culture. So a church in Ghana, West Africa, the pastor can earn $50 a month, and that's commensurate with the rest of the people in his church, and he lives at the same level as the people in his church, and it's great. When a missionary goes over there, he has to have $10,000 a month just to keep from dying. It's true. They have to have a compound. They have to have their own water. Life expectancy for a man is like 35 years old or something. So if the missionary wants to live, he can't live like they do. And so what happens? People get saved and they want to be a Christian so that they can live in a $10,000 a month compound like the missionary does. God's plan is much better that you lead people to Christ and then that church functions on the financial capability of the tithe in that community and God's plan goes on. And then that church, you know what that church does? They lead people to Christ and send them out to start another church somewhere else. That's the way that's worked for thousands of years. The autonomy of the local church. Um, then... The priesthood of the believer. The priesthood of the believer. Look at 1 Timothy 2.5. Let me get real specific for a minute. Imagine if, if um, this church is fellowshipping with the Global Baptist Independent Fellowship or whatever. And that fellowship wants to have a, a sodomite for the secretary of the, of the fellowship. Well, Grace Baptist Church won't be a part of that fellowship. Amen? If you're a part of the, the broader Methodist, the United Methodist Church, that's a big fight going on in the Methodist Church. How many of you know that? How many of you know that I just gave you the exact example of what's happening? That'll never happen with us. It can't happen. It would have to be Pastor Nathan or me, and it's not going to be me. <laughs> it's just, that was wrong, wasn't it? That was, Young people, don't disrespect your youth director that way. Um, it just it can't happen here. If, if we associate with the Bible college, and that Bible college starts teaching wrong doctrine, there's no skin off our nose. We just won't send kids to that college. Our money's not going to go to it. If you're a part of a big uh, convention of churches, your money goes into a pool. Some of it goes to liberalism. Some of it goes to good. 
And then they'll tell you, no, you can designate your money just to the good. Well, that just gives them more money for the liberal. Autonomy of the local church. We can have associations, but they're only loose associations based on fellowship and sending missionaries. That's it. No other churches tell us what to believe. We get the Word of God. The, the Word of God is what teaches us what to believe. Okay, First Timothy 2.5. Priesthood of the believer. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. I've told you this. My father would tell this story of a, a little lady was getting ready to die. She was in the hospital. And the priest came in and said, Would you like forgiveness of sins? And she said, Let me see your hands. And so he gave her his hands and she looked at them and she said, There are no holes. You can't forgive my sins. Amen. This is the priesthood of the believer. There's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, what happened in the temple? The veil was rent in two. What does that mean? That means that every person can now come to the Father through Jesus Christ. We don't need a man to go to God for us. Now, that being said, we can, as priests, intercede for someone else. If Nick's having a hard time, I can go to the Lord for him. But he can go to the Lord without me. He does not need me to go to the Lord for him. Amen? That's the priesthood of the believer. That makes us different than every other, or than any uh, other faith that would have that system. Priesthood of the believer. Then, two ordinances. Two ordinances. Uh, listen to what J.R. Graves said. Christian baptism is not the celebration of a religious rite by modes indifferent, but a specific act to be administered by a specific body to persons professing specific qualifications for the profession of specific truths. When one of these properties is wanting, the transaction is null and void, since unless the ordinances are observed as Christ commanded, they are not kept but perverted and bring upon the parties not the commendation but the condemnation of the Master. There are two ordinances. Notice we don't call them sacraments. How many of you have heard of sacraments? Sa a sacrament is something that conveys grace. You don't have to do anything to get God's grace. God's grace is a free gift. Is that what the Bible says? That's right. So if you're doing something to gain God's grace, that's not scriptural. There are two ordinances in the Bible. We call them ordinances because they were ordered by Jesus Christ. And they are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism is very clear in the scriptures. Baptism requires the proper mode what is that? It's immersion in water. That's all that baptism is. You can call it something else. How many of you have heard of the gay marriage discussion? And someone, you know, someone would ask me, do you believe in gay marriage? What? what? Gay marriage, what do you think about gay marriage? What are you talking about? Well, you know, a man marrying a man, that's not marriage. That's like asking, hey, Luke, do you believe in dry water? How about full holes? Marriage is a union between a man and a woman before God. That's what it is. You can't have your own definitions. You can have your own opinions. You can't have your own facts. Isn't that right? Baptism, the word means immerse. That's what it means. That's the only thing it means. Dip. Completely. That's, that's what the word means. So if somebody says, well, I'm sick. I, I, I want to get baptized and I can't. I'm sick. I can't be immersed. Well, then you can't get baptized. God will still love you. 
Or we can just take the wheelchair and run it right into the baptistry. I don't care. Doesn't matter. <laughs> Amen? If you do anything else, it's not baptism. Baptism requires the proper mode. Baptism requires the proper candidate. Remember what happened with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch? The eunuch's reading the scriptures, Isaiah 53. And he says to, to Philip, he says, Philip looks at him and says, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I except a man show me? So what does is, what is Philip do? He preaches Jesus from Isaiah 53. So they're going along and the eunuch says, Here's water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And Philip said, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he stopped the chariot. They both went down into the water and he was baptized. That's what baptism is. That's the picture of baptism in the Bible. It always follows belief. Now, baptism is not salvation. One of the verses people like to use is Mark chapter 16. The Bible says this, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And so the church of Christ people say, See, there it is. I say, Finish the verse. But he that believeth not is condemned already. What baptism follows your salvation. The thing that you're condemned for is not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. It's very clear in the Scriptures. Salvation comes before baptism. Proper mode, immersion, uh, proper candidate, somebody who's placed their faith and trust in Christ alone for eternal life. Then the proper administration. It's always in association with the New Testament church. Always. Baptism is three things. Baptism is obedience. We get baptized because Jesus Christ told us to. Is that right? Okay? It's obedience. It's also identification. Baptism identifies you with a body of doctrine and with a local church. It identifies you with Jesus Christ, a body of doctrine, and a local church. When Jesus Christ was baptized, remember what John said? No, no I, don't, I don't need to baptize you. I should be baptized of you. And Jesus said, no, I must fulfill all righteousness. So when Jesus Christ was baptized, why was he baptized? John's baptism, according to Mark chapter 1, verse 4, was the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. What sins did Jesus Christ need to repent of? Did he need to have any of his sins remitted? Why did he get baptized? He was identifying with John's message. He was saying, I agree with what John is preaching. He was identifying with it. And then God wanted to make sure that the whole God had got involved. So God spoke from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The dove, the, the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. They identified with Christ in his baptism. Baptism is identification. In Acts chapter 19, when the Apostle Paul, he meets some disciples of John. And he said, they said, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they said, we've not heard that there, is, that there is such a thing as the Holy Ghost. And so what does Paul say to them? Unto what then were you baptized? Yes, unto John's baptism. What did Jesus do? Or what did Paul do? He preached Jesus unto them. And what did they do? They believed in Jesus Christ and His death, burial, and resurrection... And Paul baptized them. Why? They had identified with the coming Messiah, but they had not identified with the crucified, risen Savior. Those are two different things. So why did they get baptized? Because they had identified with John's message. Now they needed to identify with Paul's message. Then it identifies you with the local church. In Acts chapter 2, the Bible says, that, and, they, and as many as gladly received His word were baptized, and they were added unto the church that day, 3,000 souls. Baptism identifies you with the Lord Jesus Christ. It identifies you with a body of teaching. And it also identifies you with a local New Testament church. Baptism is obedience, identification, but it's also submission. It's submission. When a person comes to join Grace Baptist Church, if they've not been baptized by immersion, they will be asked to be baptized so that they can become a member here. If they have been baptized in a church that teaches different doctrine, 
Okay? So let's say that Ty Blackford is going to come and join this church, and he has been in a church that teaches that you can lose your salvation. All right? They love Jesus just as much as we do. They love God's Word just as much as we do. They teach salvation by grace through faith. They're brothers in Christ will be in heaven together. Amen? But to make sure that this church remains doctrinally in agreement, Ty would be baptized saying, I agree with the doctrine of eternal security that this church teaches. Baptism is identification with a church and a body of doctrine. That's why John's disciples had to be re-baptized in Acts chapter 19. That's the biblical teaching of baptism. And that's why it's submission. It's submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ, the local church, and what that church teaches. Baptism is obedience, identification, and submission. Praise the Lord. Lord's Supper. The second of our ordinances is the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is, it's a passion play. It's a, it's a physical acting out of what Jesus Christ did for us and His satisfactory atonement on the cross. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, As oft as ye do this, you do show the Lord's death till He come. You're teaching it. You're showing it. And that's why the Bible says to examine yourself before the Lord's Supper. It's very important. The Bible says that some of you are even dead because you took the Lord's Supper and you weren't worthy to take the Lord's Supper. That's where church discipline comes in. How many of you have heard of the term excommunicated? That means you're excluded from communion. You can't take communion. Now, in the Catholic Church, that's really important because if you don't take communion, you're going to go to hell. So if they take communion from you, you can't go to heaven. How many of you think that's power? Yeah, and they have wielded it through the centuries. That's not what we're saying. The Bible says that what we're going to do is we're going to, somebody that's living in sin, we're going to exclude them from the Lord's table. We're going to exclude them from membership at Grace Baptist Church. We're going to turn them over to, the, turn them over to Satan for the destruction of the body. Why? That their soul may be preserved. doesn't have anything to do with their salvation. It has to do with corporal penalty, physical penalty for living in sin. God's built that into the universe. God does not want that in the church. So the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 5, when you come to the feast, if there be one that's a fornicator or a drunkard or all these words that are there, all these, these behaviors, with such an one know not to eat. Don't eat with them. And then it goes on to say, now it doesn't say with any man, otherwise you'd have to leave the world. If you were never allowed to eat with a, with a drunkard or a fornicator or an adulterer, if you're never allowed to eat, you, you couldn't go to a family reunion again. <laughs> that's not what it's talking about. It says when you come to the feast, it's the Lord's table. It's the Lord's Supper. And so that's why a person has to be associated. They have to be baptized. They have to, accept, they have to have accepted that free gift of eternal life. Then they have to be living a holy and godly life for people to take the Lord's Supper. Those are the two ordinances. We'll talk about the rest of them next week, Zechariah, the following week now. But it's really important that we understand that there are churches in America that agree with portions of what I said today. But only Baptists would agree with all that I said today. And notice the authority for everything that I said was Scripture. Not tradition. Not we've always done this. Man, if you knew how many times... I heard, we've never done it that way when I became pastor here. Tom May would just not stop saying it. it would... 
Oh, man. I remember the first time I did the Lord's Supper here. I think what folks didn't understand was it was the first time I had ever done the Lord's Supper. I was a new pastor. I'd never done it before. We practiced in Bible college. We, we actually went into the baptistry after a class and dunked each other to learn how to baptize. you ever thought about that? Where do you learn how to baptize somebody? The first time I ever really baptized someone was here in this baptistry. First time I did the Lord's Supper, I hadn't put a cloth over the trays. I didn't know that you all did that. I didn't know. Man, there were some folks that were so mad at me. And so now when I talk to young pastors, and um, I, I tell them this. Here's the number one thing you need to know as a, as a young pastor going into a church, an established church. Number one thing, you need to learn how to say this. How have you done this in the past? <laughs> Amen? And then if it's something that's unbiblical, you change it. If it's something that's, that's just a tradition, that's fine, then you do what the folks have done to respect what's been before you. Is that fair? Is that fair? The, the difference is very important. The difference is very important. If I am observing the Lord's Supper scripturally and miss a tradition, that's okay. If I keep a tradition and mistake what's biblical, that's not okay. See the difference? These things become very, very important. We're going to baptize here in a minute. You're going to see what baptism is in a Baptist church and its identification with the Lord Jesus Christ and with the church and with what that church teaches. Praise the Lord. Now, I, I said at the beginning, i got to say this at the end. Man, I'm thankful for anyone who's preaching the gospel anywhere in the world today. Amen? I, I don't care what religion they are. As far as the gospel goes, I hope that the gospel is being preached. If, if a Mormon somewhere is preaching the gospel, I'm not sure how that could happen, but if a Mormon is preaching the gospel, praise God. Amen? But when we're talking about what a church is, the Bible's very clear on that. If they're not agreeing with the things that we've looked at, they're not a New Testament church. Doesn't mean we hate them. Doesn't mean they're going to hell. It means they're just being disobedient to the Scriptures. We have to be willing to say that. And here's the thing. I've esteemed all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you mostly for salvation.